This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Hello, welcome to Amplify, the Australian Museum's regular podcast. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO of the Australian Museum. And in this podcast series, we look at what the Australian Museum Research Institute scientists are up to, as well as other members of our team and take you behind the scenes. Today, I welcome again Dr. Jodie Rowley, who is a herpetologist with the Australian Museum. Welcome, Jodie. Thank you. Now, Jodie, we know you are the frog expert, aren't you, at the Australian Museum? And in fact, really up and down the east coast of Australia, I think. I'm getting there. You're getting there. Now, you studied uh, frogs originally. You did your PhD up in Queensland. I did. So when I finished my honours here at the University of New South Wales, I went to see where in Australia I could do a PhD in frogs and where, but where else but the wet tropics. So I moved up there and that also gave me good training for later on and I radio tracked frogs. So stick tiny little radio transmitters with a little waste belt around frog wastes and radio track them in the forest for about two weeks at a time, finding them once a day and once a night. And that was some great experience at being in the forest for a long time, going through vines and boulders and putting my hand on a wasp's nest and all sorts of things and getting to I get getting to know a bunch of frogs really well by stalking them for 16 days at a time. So you've got to be a bit rugged to want to track frogs. Well, I don't think I would have been... Well, I don't think I... I don't appear that way when I'm in cities. So when it rains at lunchtime, I don't go outside <laughs> because I, 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 unless I'm looking for frogs, I don't see a point in getting wet. So I can I can be a bit city, but when I'm in the field, I'm in the field and I will eat the lolly when it falls on the floor of the car and, you know, eat the baked beans out of the can. So just cold and look for frogs. And look for frogs. And of course, frog diversity is under threat, isn't it? It is. So we've, we're in the, I guess I wouldn't say middle, but we're definitely in the midst of a global amphibian decline, a, a huge extinction crisis. And amphibians all around the world are, are experiencing declines, particularly in eastern Australia. Uh, we already three species of frog are extinct already and we have some that are on the brink so we want to definitely stop that. So why does it matter? Why do frogs matter in our ecosystem? They're actually a really disproportionate effect on ecosystem functioning. Amphibians, although you don't often necessarily see them around, in many ecosystems they can be more abundant, more biomass than mammals or birds. Even in places like deserts, and you'll realise this when it rains, the biomass, so if you put all the amphibians in a desert in a pile and then, you know, birds and mammals in another pile, often amphibians will be the biggest pile. They're a huge part of the ecosystem. In North America, they're driving nutrient cycling. Uh, and so when we lose them, and we have experienced this in some places like Central America, we actually lose a huge part of the ecosystem function and it doesn't seem to recover. So other animals don't seem to step up into the same kind of roles that amphibians had. So our ecosystems are irreversibly changed, it seems. Well, I can't imagine going camping somewhere in Australia without hearing those beautiful frog calls at night. I mean, it's just part of, I think, being Australian when you go out into the bush and listening to those frogs. And of course, sometimes you can hear three or four or 10 different calls at the one time. Who's calling? 
it's only the boys. So often people think maybe it's the boys and girl frogs calling, but it's male frogs wanting to attract the females to breed. So different frog species have different breeding seasons, different times when they'll be calling. Some call in summer, some call in winter, some all year, some only one or two nights a year. So you have to be super lucky. And or they just... have to be super lucky. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, they call those ones explosive breeders. So <laughs> one or two nights a year. Good luck to them. Yes. Yeah. Well, they do well those nights. They're usually huge numbers of them. But it's really strange because you can go to a pond, you can see hundreds of one species of frog. You can go two nights later, nothing. So they've done their business and they've gone away. So they're the kind of frogs that are the hardest to find, actually, because you really do have to be Johnny on the spot. Now, I know frog species are under threat in Australia, as you've just described, but they're under threat right across the globe. And you have particularly focused a lot of your research here at the Australian Museum on Southeast Asia, mostly in Vietnam. Can you tell us about your work there? So when I was finishing my PhD, it was highlighted that A, amphibians were in so much trouble and B, that Southeast Asia was this black hole of knowledge. And so I decided there were people, you know, enough biologists working in Australia and that I should move to Cambodia at the time and try and figure out what's going on there, try and get some information so that we can make informed conservation decisions. So the horrible reality is that we can't save all the forest that's there now and there's not a lot there now and we can't save all the species so we need to get enough information that we can make informed decisions and prioritize our conservation is that because urbanization is encroaching on those forests or are they being cut down or burned what what is the primary reason in Cambodia, for example? Uh, well, I guess I, largely it's just people. There's a lot of people living in those areas now and they all need to live. There's agriculture, there's logging, and there's just little slash and burn. So the average family that's living uh, very simply, but that needs to grow their crops and there's the forest and also to get enough money for their family to eat, they'll cut down those trees. And so it's a really hard situation. And and actually, you know, a lot of the forests that are actually in protected areas that are national parks or nature reserves, they actually experience the same amount of habitat loss as non-protected areas. So it's a real worry. Even if a frog is in a national park, it does not mean it's safe. Of course, the other threat over there is harvesting. Frogs and other amphibians are eaten for food, collected for traditional medicine, and they're also collected for the international pet trade. So illegally collected from the wild and exported overseas, and people will pay hundreds of dollars sometime for a really beautiful tree frog or a salamander. But these things can be in really small areas and not that many of them, so it's quite a big threat. So you said eating frogs. Mm-hmm. Now we know that uh, it, they often appear on French restaurant menus and of course the French have had a big influence in Southeast Asia in terms of their cooking. Have you eaten many frogs, Jody? Well, I moved to Cambodia as a vegetarian but working in the forest with the local people I think I, I broke down pretty quickly. So there, I have tried frog, I have indeed. And does it taste like chicken? It does taste like chicken. A little slightly fishy chicken, but but chicken nonetheless. And you can understand why eat it, why people eat it, because it's free. They can go into the rice paddies, mm. they can go into the forest and they can collect free meat that and chicken's expensive, you know. So it does make sense and a certain amount of, of frog collecting can be sustainable, but it's just when it gets too much that the frogs can't keep up. Now you've had, I guess, your most success in scientific terms in terms of identifying new species of frogs in Vietnam. I think you've discovered 16 new species, is that correct? Yep, that's the current tally, but there's another five coming right up. Wow. Well, you're a prolific frog discoverer. 
And one of those frogs is called Helen's Flying Frog. Could you tell us a little bit about that? In fact, you've brought in a few examples in jars of Helen's Flying Frog today. And I must say, it does look pink and a bit crinkly, but you said it's really bright green when you find them in the field. Yeah, so in life, they are one of the most beautiful frogs. They're about the size of the palm of your hand, so a very large frog, apple green, and with enormous hands and feet with big toe pads and webbing that goes all the way to the tips. And they are the best example that I know of of a flying frog. They're adapted for gliding out of trees, so using the hands and feet like parachutes and gliding out of trees into ponds below. How far can they glide for? Oh, they can probably glide for about 30 metres or so. Wow. Uh, And they actually have some manoeuvrability, so they've compared it to... 30% of the sort of ability of, I think it was some kind of hawk or something like that. So they actually, by moving their hands and feet, they can decide exactly where they land. Um, And this guy I first saw in 2009, and it took me a couple of years to figure out that it was a new species, despite McGrain being enormous and green, because there is a frog that looks quite similar. Uh, But when I was convinced by looking at the other species of frog, looking at the DNA, we actually realised how much trouble this guy was in. Uh, And it's now listed as endangered because it's so close to big cities. It's very close to Ho Chi Minh City and it's surrounded by agriculture and only known from a few patches of forest. Now, why Helen's Flying Frog? That's an odd name for a a Vietnamese frog, isn't it? It is indeed. Around the time that we discovered this frog, my mum was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I I knew, as silly as it sounds, having a frog named after my mum would make her happy. And even if if I sounded like a wuss to everyone else, I decided it didn't matter. The most important thing. Uh, So I asked my Vietnamese colleagues how they would feel if we called this frog Helen's Flying Frog. Uh, And in in Latin, the name is Racophorus Helenae. And that sounds quite regal as well. And they they thought it was perfectly fine. And so we did decide to call it Helen's Flying Frog after my mum. And she is obsessed with it. She has it on the back of her iPhone. She has a tote bag with Helen's Flying Frog on it. It's her desktop picture, her screensaver. So I yeah, as much as people might say, a frog named after you, frogs are all slime. I'm like, no, my mum loves it. Oh, I think that's just wonderful. And you know, it sometimes we think of scientists as being very clinical. So I think it's a nice juxtaposition that you're very engaged with this species, but that you respected your mother and have uh, honoured her in that particular way. Now, I know you work with students a lot in the field in Vietnam and Cambodia, that you've been doing a lot of capacity building there. So, and I know you get out there and literally climb up. In fact, I know you've climbed up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that expedition? The Ho Chi Minh Trail in particular was in northeastern Cambodia in a place called Virachay National Park. And this is an area that is under under great threat from hydroelectric dams, illegal logging, uh, and it was also a really tough place to get to. We had to walk for about four days carrying everything we had on our back the first time we went there all the way into a kind of a grassland where we could camp. And it was it's pretty tough conditions. I actually went back several years later and we went by helicopter and that was a little bit easier. Isn't there a lot of unexploded ordnance on the trail? Yeah, so the word trail is probably, it must have been a road back in the day, it was, but now it's it's you're on your hands and knees crawling, there's trees that are over the path, uh, there's unexploded ordnances along the side. There's bomb craters everywhere. And one of the bad things, one of the probably not the least things, is that 
bombing creates bamboo is the first thing that kind of comes back. So it, bamboo is thick and difficult to get through. It's really not a trail anymore. It was insane. Uh, so, and then sometimes you'd be in the middle of the forest and there'd be bombs and things. You'd find a bunch of bricks. And you're like, how on earth? Like I, I would throw my iPod away if I had it, you know, because we're carrying all our stuff on our back and it was yeah. tough. But some, you know, it, I can't imagine what it was like back in the day. So it must be quite tough being out there in the field surrounded by this thick, dense bushland, very humid conditions, very wet and muddy, and here you are looking for frogs. Yeah, you you get good at having like antifungal powders and stuff because that's the one thing. People, I always laugh when they have these ads on television for rainforest scent, like deodorants or room sprays. Uh-uh, that is not what rainforest smells like. Rainforest smells like fungi and rotting wood, and I know the smell of fungus when it starts growing on my skin. Oh, <laughs> So we definitely have to, you know, a lot of, because I work in the monsoon season, the frogs are out most when it's pouring with rain and most other biologists even wouldn't be caught dead in the forest. Me and my colleagues are out there looking for frogs in the pouring rain, sleeping in hammocks um, and and going out at night with lights on our heads in the pouring rain looking for frogs, but but it's fun. It sounds like enormous fun. (laughs) I know I've seen some photographs and film footage of you out there and I think you're a very tough woman. But you've brought another type of frog in to show us today, and it's a very little frog. What colour is this normally? Well, in, in preservative, the frogs are a bit of a pale yellow, but in real life, they're a transparent green. Now, this frog is also known as the frog that sings like a bird, and that's one of its amazing characters because instead of repeating the same call over and over again like most frogs, they sing like birds. They've got what's known as a hyperextended vocal repertoire. So it's a mixture of whistles and clicks, and no two calls are the same. So it's an amazing call to hear in the forest. But... There's another couple of cool things. One is that the frog has green blood and turquoise bones, and you can actually see them through their skin You're in kidding real me. life. Green blood. Green blood. And it's one turquoise of, bones? Yes. They're pretty special. And the last is that they actually lay their eggs on the tips of leaves, which then drop into the pools below. So they're a really awesome frog. They're about two centimetres. And this species was discovered by one of my colleagues, Vin, in Vietnam. He he was doing his PhD in Puhuat uh, forest and he took photos of them and sent them to me and I I instantly knew no, uh-uh, this is a new species and the following year we went back together and we found it and described it so it's Quang's tree frog Quang's f- tree frog the frog that sings like a bird isn't that great I think what you're really describing is that you've been able to identify this work that audio DNA exists yes so uh, often as I said you can't tell frogs apart so you need things like DNA and frog calls, which can be described as audio DNA. So it's not until you look at all the evidence that you realise that actually something is a new species sometimes. Sometimes you find a frog and it's pink and yellow with spikes on it and it's really obvious that it's a new species because there's nothing like it. But more often you need to get the calls and the DNA involved. Well, Jodie Rowley, thank you for joining us today for Amplify, the Australian Museum's podcast, and taking us on this exceptional journey through Vietnam and Cambodia on your frog expeditions. We're all dying to come with you. (laughs) For the fungus. (laughs) For the fungus, particularly. Thanks so much, Jodie, and good luck with your work. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.